The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss the inevitable technology shifts that will be impacting our future, the second industrial revolution, the importance of having an open mind, critical thinking, and seeking disconfirming evidence. We explore how to ask better questions and why it's so important that you do, and talk about some of the biggest technology risks with Wired's Kevin Kelly. The Science of Success continues to grow with now more than a million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER to the number 44222 or visit successpodcast.com and join our email list. 
In our previous episode, we discussed the experience trap and why someone who's been doing their job for 20 or 30 years may be no better and sometimes even worse than someone who has very little experience. We looked at the shocking truth behind 35 years of research that reveals what separates world-class performers from everybody else. We talked about how talent is overrated, misunderstood, and research says it doesn't even exist. And we go deep on the critically important concept of deliberate practice and much more with our guest, Jeff Cole. If you want to uncover the secret behind what makes world-class performers so talented, listen to that episode. Lastly, if you want to get all the incredible information in this show, links, transcripts, everything we're going to talk about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Just go to successpodcast.com and hit the show notes button at the top. Today, we have another amazing guest on the show, Kevin Kelly. Kevin is the senior maverick and co-founder of Wired Magazine. He's also the co-founder of the All Species Foundation, which seeks to catalog and identify every living species on Earth, as well as the Rosetta Project, building an archive of all documented human language and much more. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of several books, including The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. His work has been featured in Forbes, The Smithsonian, and much more. Kevin, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, it's my honor and privilege for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we're uh, very excited to have you on today. So I'd love to start out, you know, I'm sure many listeners are kind of familiar with you and your story. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the premise for the new book, The Inevitable, and kind of what really drove you to, to write it. The book in brief is a projection of the next 20 to 30 years in mostly digital technology and what those long-term trends may look like. I don't try to predict the specifics in any way. This is much more of a kind of all things being equal, this is how it's going to lean in, in these directions. And there are roughly 12 interrelated directions that are kind of all leaning in one large direction, but these 12 forces, you could think of, of, of them as these 12 forces are things that are going to happen kind of no matter what we do, but there's still plenty of decisions that we have to make in terms of the character of these specifics. And the short version of the book is I'm suggesting that we embrace some of these things, which sound a little scary, like artificial intelligence, virtual reality, that, that we embrace these in order to steer them, in order to form them into the versions that we want and a future that's friendly for us. So obviously the the title kind of implies this, but tell me more about the inevitability of many of these forces. Why are they inevitable and why does that make it so important that we embrace them? So the inevitability is a soft version that comes from the very physics, the very material world that they're all made from. Maybe a kind of a way to think about this is um, – Imagine kind of a rain falling down a valley. Well, the direction, the path of a particular raindrop as it hits the hillside and it finds its way down is it's completely unpredictable, but the general direction is is known. It's it's down. It's going to go down no matter what. And this direction comes from the kind of the physics of, of the entire terrain. And a lot of technology is really bound by, by the physics. And I think once you have invented electric wires and switches and stuff, 
you're going to come upon the, the idea of telephones inevitably. And, and we know that because there were hundreds of people working on it. You know, Edison was the 32nd inventor of the electric light bulb because it's, it was inevitable. And so while the electric light was inevitable, you know, the particular bulb was not. While the uh, telephone was inevitable, you know, the iPhone was not. While the internet will happen once you have the telephone, you know, Twitter or Facebook are not inevitable. So the, so the, so the particulars can change and they, we have decisions about whether something is a national or international, whether it's open or closed, commercial or nonprofit. All these different characters of these technologies which have their inevitability built into the physics are something that we have. So we're going to, natural evolution, try to make, Again and again, it makes flapping wings because that's a very good solution. It makes four-legged animals, quadrupeds, because that's a that's a natural solution that things arrive again and again given our gravity. And so we extend that in the technological realm with making four wheels. And so four-wheel vehicles are kind of inevitable. But, of course, you know, the um, Lamborghini's not. And so the kinds of forces I'm talking about, like artificial intelligence, virtual realities, these come about. Because as we make technology, this is a pattern things want to fall into because they're naturally inclined by by physics to go in that direction. However, the particulars, the particular companies, the, the particular products, none of those are at all uh, something we can predict. And you had a really good example looking or using, using the example of electrification and, and then kind of de- demonstrating how – that describes cognification. Can you can you explain that analogy and also talk about a little bit what cognification is or what what it means to be cognified? So one of the things evolution has made, invented, created again and again in many different classes and kingdoms of life is is mind. It keeps trying to make minds, and we're making minds, and we're putting little slivers of smartness into everything we make, and we're making some things very, very smart. That making things smarter, we don't really have a good English word, so I use cognify. We're, we're cognifying this cognification process. It happens again and again, and some things we're going to cognify to a very large extent we will call those artificial intelligences and this cognification process is going to lead to many different types of cognifying cognification so there's many different modes many different subroutines in our own minds our own brains are you know a, a, a suite a portfolio of you know, dozens of different types of cognition from perception to inductive reasoning to symbolic reasoning, arithmetic, emotional intelligence, spatial navigation. These are all different modes of of thinking. And and we have this very complicated suite, a symphony of different notes. The ones, the artificial minds that we make, some of them would be very simple with just a few of those types of thinking, like your calculator is smarter than you are in arithmetic right right now, and your navigate your your phone is sort of a better in spatial navigation than than most most of us are naturally. So we're going to inhabit and fill the world with 
thousands of different species of thinking. It's like a, like a zoo of possible minds. And most of these will be very different than humans. They'll think differently. And I'm suggesting that that's going to be their chief benefit is that they think differently than we do. And so we will work with them to solve problems. You know, the, the best chess player on the planet today is not an AI. It's an AI plus a human because they're complementary kinds of intelligences. And so as we make this codification, as we employ it, deploy it, we're going to do something very similar to what we did during the Industrial Revolution, which is that we're going to disperse it on a grid, like that like the electrical grid, which sent out artificial power to every household, every farm, every factory. And this new artificial power allowed anybody to harness this artificial power and create Things that, that no muscle power, no natural muscle power could create, throwing up skyscrapers or extending railways across a continent, generating or producing cloth by the mile, you know, shoes by the pile. So this natural uh, artificial power was distributed on this grid, and now we're going to take the artificial intelligence and we're going to distribute on a grid called the cloud and it'll become a commodity uh, like electricity. It'll be a utility that anybody can get and use and you can, you know, make every, you, you can use it to, to make whatever you want a little smarter in some dimension. And that ability will produce, you know, hundreds, if not, hundreds of thousands of new startups of new inventions question you know people will ask themselves what could i do with a thousand minds not human minds but a thousand minds working on a problem just like industrial revolution say what could i do with 250 horsepower 250 horses what can i do with that well you can do all kinds of things with it that we couldn't do before and what can we do with 250 minds working on a problem day and night and that's the second industrial revolution is going to impact everything from you know sports, fashion, religion, entertainment, military, education, business, the whole, the whole nine yards. And not tomorrow, but within the 20 or 30-year horizon. However, tomorrow, today, you can buy some AI from Google or, or Microsoft – and you can start playing around with it, just like the early tinkerers and the Edisons of the world were playing around with electricity. And you'll discover some of the easy, low-hanging fruit that are going to be available that just a few, you know, that won't take that many hours to to discover, just as the early guys hacking electricity discovered so many things in their early days. You touched on the idea that these these artificial intelligences, in many cases, many cases are going to think differently or or have you know almost artificial or alien forms of intelligence that are completely different and yet complementary to human intelligence tell me more about that so in general we have no idea what intelligence is in humans or otherwise we don't even know what animal intelligence really is so so we are ignorant about what we're trying to do and, and in fact one of the byproducts of the ai revolution will be that artificial intelligence will become a telescope a microscope that will allow us to figure out what our own intelligence is because we you know we we have difficulty experimenting on these but by making thousands of different 
varieties and you know breaking them in so many ways we'll 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 find out what it is but right now today we have no idea what this is but we do know that it's not a single dimension that the intelligence is a complicated process of many different types of thinking even if they may run on a similar matrix of the neurons the the organization the way the way the way that they that their the data is organized is is different and we will use those differences to engineer intelligences that we're going to optimize certain things that we want done like maybe it's a, a proof of scientific theorems maybe it's just as a speech uh, listener maybe it's to have conversations maybe it's to figure out trajectories of of a rocket all these things can be can be optimized for very individual type applications and there'll be ones that will consider more general purpose but they can't they can't be you can't you can't optimize everything that's the kind of engineering maximums that you whatever system you are you can't optimize every single dimension so there's always going to be trade-offs and so some of these new kinds of minds that we make we may actually invent a whole new type of thinking that does not exist in nature just as we did with with flying you know when we invented artificial flying we studied the animals bats and insects and birds and they all flapped their wings so all the initial attempts at flying were flapping wings which works well when we finally invented artificial flying we invented a type of flying which does not exist in nature which is a fixed wing with a propeller and we're probably do the same thing we'll probably uncover some types of cognition that don't exist in the natural biological world and we'll be able to do those in silicon they will be different than our minds and all these varieties this zoo will vary tremendously and in many cases the fact that they think differently is their chief asset because in the connected world that we're operating in in this new economy the chief asset of for innovation and wealth generation is being able to think differently and as more of us are connected when we get to the point when we have you know 5 billion people connected all the time 24 hours a day thinking differently actually becomes difficult because we you know we have basically a group mind and so having artificial intelligences that think differently will help us to maintain and think differently while we're connected to everybody else. So there's a double advantage to having AIs that think differently than humans. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And and that makes me think about one of the other forces that you talk about, which is this idea of filtering. And, and in a world where we increasingly have so much attention, so many things competing for our attention, how do we use technology to to filter out and and really focus on the most important things? Yeah, I think that's the right place to start. Which is that if you graph or start to measure the, the number of creative products that that our society at large, the human species is producing, it's mind-numbing. So even like the number of new songs that are written and produced every year, the number of new books, not just, I mean, even in English, but worldwide, or the, or the number of videos, the number of new products that are available for sale, it's overwhelming and way, way beyond what any one person could attend to. And even if you had a filter, which is what we're talking about, some filter that would take away all the crap, which is most of the stuff, there's still way too much good stuff even to list and pay attention to, let alone to to try out or enjoy. And so as technology, through technology, we're, we're creating this avalanche of stuff, but we, so we need technological help to actually sort through it and you know we're going to have levels and levels of of this and there's kind of no escape a lot of people feel well maybe you know the the solution is just to turn it all off all these filters go naked you know uh, be real but but no we there, there are problems introduced by filters but the problems introduced can only be really offset by yet other levels of 
filtering and and looking at things and helping us to navigate through. So, you know, the recommendation engines and the the algorithmic connections that filters are are necessary for us to navigate through this in any in any sense at all. And there are some problems in computer science that's called overfitting. So if if you are really only seeing things that you know you already like and you kind of get stuck on this local peak of optimization that prevents you from really seeing really great stuff because it's you're you're too fit to what you've specified and you aren't broad enough to really see something wider and better and so we need all kinds of tricks devices additional technologies that can search wider that can actually change our our tastes that actually can help us grow that can um, help us see when we're being blinded by our own likes there, there, there's lots of levels, and of course now we have the new challenge of, of fake news and alternative facts, where some of these filters have introduced polarization, has introduced kind of blindness, and so we again need to have additional layers of like truth signaling layer, where things can be assigned a kind of a networked consensus on the probability of there being true, some kind of confidence level, like you know this. This fact here has a 95% chance of being reliably true and based on these sources, based on the many other sources that we also trust, that have a high trust value, that trust it. And so you have this kind of a citation index and like, like page rank. So these things are all additional levels that we're going to bring in, and it's become even more complicated. It's never going to become simpler, and, and we will – maybe require an education to learn how to use it. You know, I mean, you and I and all your your listeners have spent four years at least learning how to read and write. It was not it was not easy. It was we just didn't absorb it by being around books. And some of this kind of stuff of learning how to um, uh, use being aware of how to become literate in social media or filtering news, critical reading. These may be this may be a, a, a literacy that we actually have to teach people, and they may have to spend some years in learning how to become good at it. So. We shouldn't necessarily expect that people can just sort of learn how to navigate through this stuff without any kind of disciplined practice. But it's not going to become easier. It's going to become ever more complicated. I think that's such a vital challenge and, and something, I mean, you know, part of the the kind of reason that we even do this podcast is to help teach people, help enlighten people and, and you know, talk to people about seeking disconfirming evidence and things that are kind of outside their comfort zone and really looking at the data and the science and trying to figure out, you know, what is actually true and what is real. And, you know, I would consider that a literacy uh, and, and that's that kind of techno literacy maybe is what I would call it is something that may have many dimensions, including the critical thinking that you're talking about. But I, you know, that may be something that we actually have to teach. I think that's a great idea. It's fascinating. And, and that's, you know, that's one of the problems I wanted to ask you about was, how do we solve this as as you call it sort of overfitting 
where everyone lives in essentially a bubble that is is self-reinforcing of only information that they want and only information that they like. Well, one of the reasons I travel a lot is for that very reason. It forces me into otherness. It forces me to be confronted with a, a, a different worldviews, a different point of view, and you know, if it, I allow myself no escape from it, so it's visceral, it's full body, and you know, there's certainly ways to travel where you're isolated. But again, I, I'm going for the the raw and the remote, and there I'm allowing myself to have my mind changed. And I think I recommend that highly, particularly for young people, as a as a means to begin that habit of trying to see the world from a different point of view of allowing yourself to be challenged by other views, which may be the majority in the places that you wind up in. And so that, that that's for me a surefire way to do that. And I think it's so important for young people that I think we should as a nation, subsidize it in the form of um, mandatory two-year national service where you have your choice to serve in the military or the Peace Corps or some kind of a service organization for two years without exceptions, including, you know, overseas somewhere. And it would radically change the tenor of our of our country Besides the fact that you're mixing up with people that you didn't grow up with, you're also mixing up with people that are far outside of your own um, prejudices. You also talk in the book about questioning and and the how as many of these technological forces reshape society, one of the most important skill sets is going to be the ability to ask great questions. Yeah, I, th- I think in 30 years, if you want an answer, you're going to ask a machine. Machines will have very, very good answers. They're getting ever smarter, ever more knowledgeable. Um, they'll be more conversational. And just as we kind of like, you know, I don't know, I, I don't. If I can't remember, I don't remember how to spell things. I just ask Google, it tells me the correct way to spell stuff. And so we're going to rely on it for information, facts, and and those nature of answers, but it's going to be a long time before these things, AIs, robots can ask good questions because it require a good question is, is requires a very broad common sense education perspective. And that's sort of what we want to actually breed and, and teach in schools is being able to ask good questions because in some senses, both science and innovation are fundamentally ways of asking questions like what if they're 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 kinds of they're explorations they are they're they're not concerned about efficiency they're very inefficient processes that entail sometimes wasting time and having failures because you are you know you you have dead ends you um, have things that don't work and that nature of investigation questioning requires the broadest sense of being and is the most productive in the long term because that's where the new things come from. That's where empathy comes from. That's where our, our sense of, of vision all, all derive from. And teaching how to do that is, you know, 
naturally some people are better than others, but everybody can be taught to be a little better at it. And I think that's one of the several key things besides what we we're just talking about technical literacy that you want to teach in schools rather than how to regurgitate answers, which is sort of the industrial model. How do you think we can, you know, m maybe as a simple starting point, how could somebody who's listening to this show start to ask better questions? <laughs> That's a great question. There you go. You asked a good question. I think well, one thing I've I learned is, you know, I had a kind of a rocky relationship with school. I was a real science math nerd, but my my method of operation was very simple. I sat up front and I was a guy who asked all the stupid questions that people felt that they had, they wanted to ask, but were too embarrassed to, but I would ask because I have no embarrassment at all about asking questions. Basically, if I don't understand, I figure nobody else understands. That's basically what an editor, what I'm doing when I'm editing a piece for like Wired is like, look, if I don't understand it, the reader is not going to understand it. So, so, so one of the suggestions I'm kind of pointing to is, there are no dumb questions, really. I mean, if you ask it in sincerity and if you're really not being dumb, but if you if you really are struggling with understanding something, don't be afraid to, to ask the question because it's likely if you're having problems, so are other people. And but but, you know, but then really listen, you know, that's the difference. And so there are no real dumb questions. And then secondly, there there's a good question is one that generates not just an answer but other good questions from it and so how should i say it there's there's a way of uh, there's a, a lateral thinking that's very productive which is to approach the question to approach the subject from a different angle so while you shouldn't be afraid to ask the stupid question you should also be trying to think about a question that hasn't been asked before so it's that's a little harder to do. That requires a little bit more work. But the way – there are several tricks. I mean, I I hung around Marvin Minsky, the great AI guru at MIT for a long time, and he had a remarkable way of asking questions. And after observing him, I'm pretty sure that what it was is he believed that he was like a Martian, that he wasn't human. He would, or that he was a robot or something. He was just not human. He would ask the question sort of as if he was a machine and that he didn't know all the things that humans knew. And that was refreshing and infuriating at the same time, but he got to ask really great questions because he was coming from this other angle. And another person I know, uh, Brian Eno, who's you know, the rock star, does the same thing. He, he has uh, adopted some point of view where he's going to ask the question as if he's not just another you know, Englishman somewhere. He's coming from uh, you know, an alien point of view, which enables him to bring a different insight to it. And so that would be maybe my second suggestion is like, don't be afraid of, of obvious questions, but also try and view, trying to ask a question as if you were standing from a different place than most people are standing. Those are both great suggestions. And, and I agree along the same lines of the kind of the concept, as you called it of techno literacy, I think the ability to ask great questions is another skill set that is really worthwhile to cultivate. I'm curious out of, out of the, various forces you described what changes 
do you see coming down the pike that that you're most scared of and why? Mm, that's a good question. So I want to make it clear that I'm not a utopian. I am not a dystopian. I'm a protopian, meaning that I am um, I believe that technology will produces almost as many new problems as it solves, but that in that those in the new problems it solves the solutions to those are additional new technologies which will produce new problems but that what we get from that cycle is a tiny minute improvement of a few percent per year that's compounded over centuries that become civilization and progress so that progress is real even though it's very very slight that's what i call protopia progress it's propelling forward so there are tons of new things that are coming about and tons of things to worry about if you want to worry. One of my concerns about these new technologies is what we're seeing. Actually, there's a great example today, which is cyber war, cyber conflict. Right now, today, as we're speaking, there was um, a malware attack in Ukraine that kind of shut down the country. And... I think we we we've just we're just seeing the beginning of this. We were, we're our society is so dependent on this stuff that it it is uh, very susceptible to disruption. I, I I think the likelihood of an entire internet falling down is is really hard to do and be really really hard to engineer even if you had the assignment. But that there's going to be sicknesses, ailments, injuries, local injuries, all the time, and. The, my real fear is not those kind of what we might call ordinary injuries, but a cyber war like conflict, a state to state, because we don't have a consensus right now on what's acceptable in this new realm. We, we have lots of treaties and agreements about conventional warfare. It seems odd that we have, you know, rules for war, but that's better than no rules and but we don't have them in any real operational way with the cyber conflict and when we introduce artificial intelligence to it, it's even going to be amplified up even more and and my fear is that there'll be some really bad thing that will happen before there's an agreement that, that no we don't want that to happen so so right now you know is it okay for you know cyber things to take down the banking system somewhere and is it okay to work in hospital you know to take down the hospital computers and the answer is is that there is an agreement there's not an agreement because the the major states involved in this the US you know Russia China maybe Israel Iran Korea North Korea none of none of these states are even acknowledging that they're that they're doing this and there's all deniability and it's very hard to ascertain what's really going on. And so until there's some really widespread agreement that no, this is, this is not permissible. I think that that which is not permissible will happen. And, you know, there's doesn't have to be that way, but I'm not sure what will take what would have to happen before there would be some agreement so this happens before disaster strikes but that's my current fear it seems like in many ways i mean as you said recently in the news it seems like the number of kind of cyber attacks and various things going on continues to escalate or at least it seems like i hear about more and more frequently yeah in many in many cases it seems there's kind of a state actor that's tied to it in some way or another but as you said it's it's often very kind of 
they have plausible deniability or it's untraceable. So I totally yeah. understand what you're saying. Yeah. You know, I mean, a generation ago, I mean, a technological generation, you know, in the 90s, say, or even 2000s, the U.S. And, and Western Europe to some extent was, you know, that was the entire world in terms of the Internet. But now, you know, every country is, you know, just jam-packed. They've got their smartphones, ubiquitous smartphones and stuff. And so and so this is now a global it's a global neighborhood. It's a global platform. And so a lot of these things are happening in places where, you know, there's pol more politics involved. There may be less security. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it before we, well, I don't know, just a lot more of it in general. So it's sort of like uh, the body has grown and now there's sort of more ways to injure it. We will keep adding more and more layers to prevent the injury, but there will always be new ways to injure it or to exploit it. And again, I think overall, the likelihood of the whole thing collapsing become less and less. But of course, whatever major damage is occurred be becomes more and more impactful. So it won't, it wouldn't take, it wouldn't take a very big injury to really scare everybody. And again, if we go back to like something like terrorism, the point of terror, of course, is not really to hurt, but to inflict terror to get your demands. I think it will become very easy to terrorize the electronic body, the body electric, even with relatively what we call minor injuries to the whole, you know, and you could really do a lot of damage just by the terror of it. And that's a second level of, of worry that, you know, you don't need to do very much to actually have everybody go crazy. And and what do you what would you say to somebody maybe listening to this that and, and I think this applies not only to kind of this specific context, but more broadly to the whole thesis of the book that says or thinks to themselves, you know, oh yeah, all these technology changes, you know, AI, robotics, everything else sounds cool, but I don't really think that's going to happen. It's, you know, these Silicon mm. Valley futurists with all these yeah. fancy ideas. What would you say to somebody who thinks something like that? Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, in five years, they will certainly be able to, to say that because they'll say, well, none of this has happened. You know, look at it. You know, VR is still not present. There are still not AI. So, uh, so one thing is, is the conversation that I'm, really having is talking about 30 years, 20, 20 to 30 years, okay? Because I don't think these are necessarily going to happen necessarily that fast. But there are kind of, the general tendency is to maybe overestimate how soon they're going to happen and underestimate the, the lasting impact that they have. So I think, yeah, you should be maybe skeptical about the speed. But in terms of the general direction, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say because people have been saying this all along. There was a huge mm, denial, I guess I would call it, about the early days of the internet that this would ever become mainstream. I mean, this was the recurring criticism of our enthusiasm for the internet when it was still just typing, when it was, you know, just text. It was like, no, this is like, this is, this is marginal. This is appealing to teenage boys in the basement. You know, this is not about the mass. This is not a mass mainstream thing. And it was like nothing you could say who would kind of convince anybody that uh, otherwise. And so to say that AI 
mm, won't get big. I, I, I think I think it won't get maybe big fast, and you could be right about it for a long time. And then there's the other issue of uh, the definition, right? Right. I mean, AI is artificial intelligence is defined as that which we can't do. So so people will say, well, AI, we don't have AI yet. Well, if if you if you had Alexa or a Siri. 50 years ago, they, everybody would absolutely agree that it was artificial intelligence. I woke up, Alexa. Uh, and so, yes, even in probably 30 years from now, people will just say, well, we still don't have AI. And, and that's because we keep redefining it as to what the, the thing we can't do yet. So they would be right in that sense. In 30 years, they'll say, yeah, we still don't have AI. It's just all a, a pipe dream. But yet at the same time, the cars will be driving themselves and people say, well, that's not really AI. That's just machine learning. That's just, you know, yeah, that's just brute force. That's just computers. And so there, there's, I don't know, there's really no, we're talking about the future, so there's really no argument about it. The only thing I would say is, look, even if we don't, arrive there, even if there isn't ever conscious AIs walking around in humanoid bodies, even if there isn't some AI in your ear that's talking to you like a young girl, like in her, even if we don't have that, the general direction of where we're headed is still in that direction. And that's sort of what I'm talking about in the book. It's like, all things being equal, we're going to move in that direction. Maybe we don't ever arrive there, but we're going to move in that direction. And so knowing that we're going in that direction is extremely helpful, and you'll be able to reap the benefits and minimize the harm if you understand that that's the general direction we're going, even if we never arrive. What would be one kind of simple piece of homework or starting point that you would give to somebody listening to this conversation uh, as a way to maybe concretely implement some of the concepts we talked about? So I think one of the most enabling forces at work is artificial intelligence. And I think it's going to impact everything we do in all aspects of our lives from food, fashion, sports, religion, military, education, business. And I would say a piece of homework is buy some AI right now. Just log on to Google TensorFlow or uh, IBM or, or Microsoft purchase some AI and start fooling around with it. Just like the, uh, if my advice, you know, if, you know, 150 years ago when the industrial revolution was coming on and I'm, I'm doing a podcast and the guy, you know, he's saying for all those farmers out there, what would you suggest the best way for them to prepare themselves for the industrial revolution? And I would say, you know, make a battery and start fooling around with electricity. Just, just, you'll probably discover something amazing. You'll be able to, you know, you'll, you'll educate yourself. And so I think dabbling in these things, um, educating yourself so that you, we can talk about them intelligently so that you, so that when, as we come to regulate them and to tame them and domesticate them, that we do out of experience that it's not just something you've read about that you've actually you know spent time. So my entire enthusiasm and optimism comes a lot from the fact that I've you know been living online since 1981 or something, and you know just experiencing what happens when people go digital, and it's not based so much on reading. It's based on the fact that I have 
an actual experience from this. And I think as much as you could do to experience these new technologies, you would, it would really inform all the other questions you might have about where to go next. And where can listeners find you and the book online? So my homepage is my initials, kk.org. And a lot of my older books are actually available for free. I was I posted the entire text of my first book while it was still in copyright on the web for free because at that time I owned digital rights because at the time I made the contract, New York publishers didn't think digital rights were at all valuable. They were just – they didn't know what they were. And my second book is also up in full on my website, kk.org. There are, Kindle, of course, now Kindle and paperback editions of The Inevitable, and weirdly, the paperback edition is cheaper than the Kindle edition. Don't ask. I have no idea why. Um, and I sometimes tweet as Kevin2, the number two, Kelly. In fact, I tweeted almost, I tweeted the, the I would call the entire book of The Inevitable at one point. In the sense, I tweeted I a sentence from every page of the book. I didn't ask permission. I just did it. And my recent little thing is from Cool Tools is uh, we send out a one-page email newsletter thing, a one-pager that's six very brief recommendations of cool stuff, tips, places to go, eat, tools, whatever. Very one sentence, six, one, very, or you know, a couple sentence recommendations for six things every Sunday is called Recommendo with, with one M, recommendo.com, and you can sign up there. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all your incredible insights. It's been an honor to have you on here. It's been a real delight. Thank you for your great questions. You're obviously a human, and so I appreciate the support and enthusiasm for my work. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all of this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to successpodcast.com, that's successpodcast.com, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we just talked about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Just go to successpodcast.com and hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 